Well, good morning. It is good to see you guys. We're going to be in the book of Philippians this morning, chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, as you guys turn there, let me just uh, remind you guys, in case you guys came in late, we're going to be doing lunch afterwards. Uh, so we'd love to have you guys stick around. Uh, gentlemen, let me just uh, warn you guys, uh, it's free and it's hot dogs, which means you need to stay. It also means it's not a good substitute Valentine's date. So don't try to spontaneous kind of Valentine's deal on your girl, all right? That's not this place. This is not the time, all right? And, but uh, we would love to have you guys stick around with us. We'd love to have a chance just as a community to kind of gather and to do lunch together. So we'd love for y'all to stay. We're going to be Philippians chapter 2 this morning, verses 5 to 11. If you have your Bibles, follow along with me. Verses 5 to 11, chapter 2, Paul writes, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. You pray with me. Father God, we do recognize that a day will come, a glorious day will come, in which Jesus Christ will be recognized and all will submit to his rule. And Father, I pray that as we live in light of that day and as we await for his return, Lord, I pray that you would give us a purity of passion. I pray that you would give us a single-minded focus and purpose in our lives. Father, I pray even this morning, Lord, in the midst of the things that are going on in our lives, Lord, I pray that you would calm our hearts. I pray that you would remove distractions, Lord. I pray that you'd allow us just to be taught by your word. I pray that you would speak to us, and that wherever we are, whatever's going on, Lord, I pray that your spirit and his quiet leading would come along and and open our hearts to hear you. Uh, That you would remove the blinders in our eyes and allow us to see truth as you've composed it and as you have communicated it. Father, I pray even just for myself this morning, Lord, I pray that you would use me as you see fit and that you'd allow this time to be first and foremost honoring to you. I pray this morning as we open your word and as we walk through this time, Lord, I pray that your son, Jesus Christ, would be lifted high, that we would be preoccupied with him and him foremost. I pray that you would allow us to see him as he is and that you would allow us to see the significance of what he's done on our behalf. Father, I pray that your spirit would convict us and challenge us and draw us to you uh, even deeper this morning, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, I don't know if you guys uh, have ever had someone walk up to you guys and say, hey, I don't know if you ever knew this, but do you know that you often look like somebody? Um, for me, uh, one of the ones I've gotten often is an actor named Paul Rudd. I don't know if you see that. Um, I've gotten the Paul Rudd thing. Um, but even more so, um, and a lot of y'all may know where I'm headed with this, but uh, as a pe- preacher and pastor, maybe this gets even more, but the one I've gotten more than anything is the Joel Osteen thing. <laughs> I don't know, the suit, the crazy formal photo thing, and then the hair. You know, I think it's the hair. I don't know. I, I get the Jalosian thing all the time, all right? Uh, no lie, no exaggeration. I've been in the Houston airport multiple times, and I've had people grab my shoulder, spin me around, look at me, go, no, no, back away, yes, no, back away, you know, and, and then walk off and apologize. Um, I, I was in a wedding one time, and uh, one of my good friends uh, was a groomsman along with me. Uh, my good friend's name was David Osteen, and then I was up on stage, and so my name and David Osteen's name were in a wedding uh, program, and uh, uh, kid you no lie, woman after the uh, wedding comes up to me and begins to, in a sense, put two and two together and come up with five and, and goes on about my father, Joel, um, and how uh, I'm so blessed. Uh, you know, I have such a man of truth and a man of the Bible um, and just go on and on. And I had to finally explain to her, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm really not at all, at all 
who you think I am, all right? Um, in fact, my parents are here this morning, and they can assure you I am not Joel Osteen's son, all right? Um, I am the son of Todd and Sharon Corey, um, and it actually was their idea as they lived a couple streets away from Joel Osteen in Houston to one day maybe just show up unannounced to his front door and present myself as a long-lost son, right? And just see how that went. Um, I've also had the idea of why not just showing up at a Barnes & Noble and pulling off, you know, my best life now and having a good f- few friends that would, you know, convince everyone else that I was Joel and I could just do a spontaneous book signing, right? Uh, just kind of, uh, you know, unannounced. Uh, and then I often thought, what if in that same setting, I kissed Marcy and got caught on picture and had all kinds of tabloids and gossip go, right? What would happen, right? Um, well, if, if you guys have at all, at all been here at Southwood for any time, you know, really the similarities between Joel and I really start and stop at appearance, right? Um, that's about it with us, okay? Uh, I've tried to figure out if I could mimic his voice, but I really haven't gotten, gotten there. Um, and uh, even a week ago at our men's retreat, uh, uh, the guy that was speaking uh, made a comment about uh, preachers with a lot of hair that use a lot of hair products really are to be less trusted in their theology uh, than those that lack it. And, and I, I missed the night that he was speaking, and so everyone was looking around for me, wondering, hey, where I was, how I would defend myself with all this hair, all right? Um, but again, whether it's Joel or me, honestly, appearances really is where it starts and stops in terms of our similarities. Our theology could not be more different. And in fact, it's really not that hard to mimic outward appearance. Uh, For some of you guys, you can even mimic people's voices. Uh, It's not that hard to mimic certain things that are outward about people, all right? Uh, And so that's why I've gotten the Joel thing so often, because I I can mimic his appearance, at least to to many. And yet what we're going to see this morning in Philippians chapter 2 is that Paul is going to call you and I to mimic not an appearance, not a theology, uh, and not even a voice. What Paul is going to call you and I to do this morning is to imitate an inner attitude, an attitude of humility. And particularly the one that we're going to be called to see this morning is Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be called to imitate an inner attitude, an an inner disposition of heart of Jesus Christ. All right. Chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, I'll tell you, though, is not just a charge to imitate the humility of Jesus Christ. If all this passage was, was verse 5, to have the same attitude that Jesus has, an attitude of humility, we could pack this thing home and go home and head off to lunch right now, all right? And what's really ironic about this, this section in this passage this morning is that really a, a passage is all about the very humility of Jesus Christ, that he is the par excellence, the best example you can find of humility, is far more than just a passage about humility. In fact, I would submit to you guys in many ways that a passage that is about the humility of Jesus Christ is probably one of our most profound and most central passages that shows us the greatness of Jesus Christ. Really, this passage this morning is really one of the gems of the book of Philippians, and it provides us and shows us and really answers the profound questions of who is Jesus and what has he done. If there's any questions you have as to who Jesus Christ is and to what he has accomplished, Philippians 2 comes into that this morning and answers not just to demonstrate for you a great example of humility, But really, I think Philippians 2 will show us exactly who Jesus Christ was and exactly what he accomplished. In five basic verses, Paul will tell us that Jesus was human, that Jesus was divine, that Jesus died for us, and that Jesus one day will return and receive universal worship and will receive universal submission of all people to his reign and his rule. Five verses in a passage that is all about the humility of Jesus Christ, in many ways, is so much more than that. It's a passage that I think is one of the most profound to really provide an answer to us as to who Jesus is. I think in the, in the contemporary culture that it is questioned and assumed that really the church kind of came up with the idea of who Jesus was and what Jesus has done in the third or fourth century, I think Philippians 2 tells us, no, no, the church had a clear sense of who Jesus was and in what Jesus had done far before the third and fourth century. 
In fact, the book of Philippians recorded in, in AD 61, 62, uh, 30 years, less than 30 years after the death of Christ provides us a profound and clear sense of exactly what the church thought of Jesus Christ and who the church thought he was and what he had done. It wasn't fabrication. It wasn't a collected lie that we all as a church kind of got around the table and said, hey, what do we need to do? How do we need to paint Jesus? AD 61, AD 62, 30 years after the death of Christ, less than 30 years after the death of Christ, Paul will write this and compose this. An answer without a question of a doubt, without any kind of hesitation as to who the church thought Jesus was. So this really is really a profound gem within the book of Philippians. Profound for the church's understanding of who Jesus was and what Jesus accomplished. Five verses, and yet I think one of the richest sections we're going to find in the book of Philippians this, this semester as we walk through it. What you're going to see as Paul really kind of moves us forward is he's going to call us to imitate Jesus Christ. Notice verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul speaking back to verses 3 and 4, where he called the church to walk in humility, to regard one another as more important than themselves. And he comes here and says, in order to do that, let me give you an example to model yourselves after. Let me give you, in a sense, a, a forerunner, one to follow behind so that you can see and know what humility looks like, what it tastes like, and how it looks and how it acts. In fact, as Paul goes on, what we're going to see is the reason why I think Jesus is the profound example of humility is because he had the farthest to stoop and the farthest to bend low in light of who he was. In fact, as we look at Jesus himself, what we're going to find is that he had, in a sense, divine right. That in terms of who Jesus was, in terms of his own existence, he had divine right. He had the farthest to stoop down in order to serve than any of us could ever have. And therefore, in his example of humility, we're going to see that he was unlike any other that would ever try to walk in humility. Notice what Paul will say in verse 6. He says, Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, Paul will make a profound assertion here at the very beginning of this section. Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God. What does he mean that Jesus was in the form of God? I think in many ways our uh, current usage of the word form denotes an outward appearance that often sometimes doesn't really correlate to an inner reality, right? And so some of you guys uh, today can go out and you can buy Chia Obama and Chia Shrek, all right? Uh, you can buy a form of Obama and you can buy a form of Shrek that has the outward appearance of those two, the outward shape, but has nothing of the actual inner reality or essence, right? No one thinks that Chia Obama is Obama, right? Uh, no one's going to make that mistake, Okay. And so what is Paul saying here in terms of that Jesus is the form of God? I think for you and I, we often think that the form is simply an outer appearance without the inner reality. And yet in the Greek usage of form, it never meant that. In the Greek usage of the word form, it denoted always in a sense that there was an actual essence or inner reality. That the outer appearance, the outer attributes denoted and highlighted an inner essence and inner reality. And so Paul is saying in the very outset that really that Jesus, the par excellence of uh, humility, was one who existed in the very form of God. He possessed the very nature and the very reality and the very attributes of God. Uh, excuse the oversight here, but in a sense, Jesus is not a Chia God. He's not one who's in the form or the appearance of God that lacks the nature and the essence of God. Paul will say in terms of this excellent example of humility that Jesus actually possesses divine nature and divine reality. He is God. Profound statement. In fact, as he says that he existed in the form of God, the tense of the Greek there actually for existed is not past. It is actually he exists in the form of God. It can be even more profound as we look later on in the passage when we see that Jesus, who is in the form of God, will also take on human nature. And even as he takes on human nature, Paul is making the statement here that even as he takes on human nature, he continues to exist in the form of God. Jesus, who we will find in a minute, was man. 
even in him taking on man, has always been and will always be in existing in the form and the nature of God. Jesus is God, is what Paul is saying. In fact, he goes on further and he says, although he existed as in the form of God, despite the reality of his existence, it is no excuse for him to be exempted from the call of humility. Though he had divine right, he was not exempt from the call of humility, is what Paul wants to start out telling us. Even though he was existing in the very nature of God, it did not mean that he was exempt from the call of humility. In fact, I had the chance this past week to be at the Texas A&MTU basketball game on Monday night. Uh, incredibly close game that ended uh, very disappointingly. Um, but while there, I had a chance to see, uh, if you guys were there, Von Miller, the greatness that is Von Miller, was there uh, on Monday night sitting courtside, all right? So I was about 20 uh, rows up watching Von and watching the, the whole experience of the game for him. And one of the things that was blowing me away throughout the game was that was far more of a photo shoot for Vaughn than it was an actual basketball game, all right? So uh, every time out, people would just flock him and flood him and take pictures with him. And as he did it, and everybody watched, and as he showed up on the Jumbotron, it was a countless, er, never-ceasing flood of people to him for pictures, all right? Uh, and there's even points in the fourth quarter where the game is going on and people are trying to talk to him and get pictures. And I'm thinking at some point, man, it's the fourth quarter, right? At some point, he's got to be thinking, even as gracious as he was to accommodate so many people, at some point, surely he would have loved to just been a dude and been able to watch a game, right? Surely at some point in the midst of the greatness that it was be, to be Von Miller, in the midst of how cool it must have been to have all these people think so highly of you, surely at some point for any celebrity or any star, they begin to think, man, it'd be great just to be anonymous, Right? That's why you have celebrities all the time that pop into public arena and they just want to be anonymous. And so they go into skies or they go in places where people won't be. And they just want to be normal. For so many celebrities and stars, I think they want to be normal. They want to be anonymous. They don't want to assert or claim their star st- status because they just want to blend in. One of the things we're going to see that Paul is going to say next is that Jesus, in a sense, similarly is not going to assert his star status and not for selfish reasons, but for completely selfless reasons. Notice what Paul will say next. Jesus, who existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What is Paul saying there? This one who was in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He who existed in the nature and the essence of God did not regard, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What is Paul saying about Jesus? Was Jesus less than God? Did Jesus think, oh, this whole thing with being God, I don't, I don't need and I'll throw away? Well, what was he saying? Interesting enough, uh, to look at the verb there, to grasp, if it, was, if it described a person who did not possess something, it was often denoting a violent seizure of something or robbery. And so for Jesus, who, in terms of his relationship to the, towards equality with God, did Jesus possess equality with God? Yes. So it wasn't a violent seizure for him if he were to grasp equality with God because he had it, he possessed it. And so instead, if it denotes someone who already possesses something, the verb has the idea that the person doesn't assert or claim something. So what Paul is saying is that Jesus who existed in the nature of God did not assert or claim that status. He didn't need to push it in our face. He didn't need to push it in his ministry and his nature. He just let it go. He would claim it in certain passages, but what Paul was going to say here, particularly that we're to see in his uh, example of humility is that his star status His nature as God, he was willing to not assert it and not claim it. He could let it go. In fact, what Paul will say is it wasn't just that he didn't assert it, but he actually laid it down. Notice what he says in verse 7. That this one who existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. The one who was God actually emptied himself. What made him so stunning of an example of humility was that he had divine right 
It was in the nature of God, and yet he emptied himself, and he laid aside his privileges, and he laid aside his star status. Well, why? What does it mean that he emptied himself? Uh, Verse 7, that word there, to empty, really is one of the great mysteries, really, of this passage. It's one of the greatest, hardest things to understand. What exactly did he empty? In a sense, what did he lay aside? Did he lay aside divine nature? I don't think so, because he exists in the form of God. What did he lay aside? Really, I think it's really helpful as we look at that question to see what Paul will say next. That, in a sense, the reason why he emptied himself was because he added something. Notice what he says in verse 7. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. In a sense, uh, how did he empty himself? Typically, we ask, what did he empty himself of? What does it mean that he emptied himself? What, what in the world is Paul saying? I think that what we can see clearly is the way that he emptied himself was by taking on something. Paul will say here he took on the nature of a bondservant. Interesting enough, uh, bondservant is what Paul described himself as in one one, And so Jesus emptied himself by adding something. There was subtraction by addition. He took on human nature. And Paul will stack up descriptions to, to declare that. Notice how Paul says it over and over again. Verse 7, he took on the form of a bondservant, the same kind of form that Paul will describe himself on as in one one. He continues on verse 7, and being made in the likeness of men. Jesus being made in the likeness of men. Jesus took on human nature. Verse 8, being found in appearance as a man. And so Paul begins to to stack up these descriptions one after another to highlight for you and I that Jesus, who was in the nature and the form of God, took on human nature. Profound statement as to what the early church believed that Jesus was God and man. And as we think about that union of divine nature and human nature, many will ask, well, what becomes of him in the future, right? Uh, What's fascinating as we look at this is that Jesus, who took on human nature, would not shuttle it away later on. It wasn't a temporary decision for him because we see him post-resurrection and ascended to the heavens as the God-man. One was in the nature of God and in the nature of man for all of eternity. This wasn't a temporary pit stop for Jesus. This whole thing with human nature, this whole thing with human experience, it wasn't just a pit stop. It wasn't temporary for Jesus. Uh, for some of us guys, uh, we morph into a different person when Valentine's rolls around, all right? Uh, if we're honest with you ladies, we'll admit to you that we think Valentine's is um, the worst holiday known toward American uh, calendar, all right? Uh, we'll admit to you guys that we think that it's just a conspiracy for flower companies and chocolate companies just to take advantage of us economically, all right? Um, and so we, we morph into this new person, all right? Uh, I'll tell you guys, uh, ladies, we'll even morph for a couple weeks here into Rachel McAdams fans, all right? Um, We'll like her movies, right? We'll, we'll seem like willing uh, observers. And then all the while, and in two weeks, there's no way in the heck we're going to go see any Rachel Magga Adams movie, right? Uh, in a sense, we can morph and we can take on the likeness and the appearance of romantic for two weeks during Valentine's, all right? Uh, time before it, time after it. But after Valentine's is over, there's no way we're watching a Rachel McAdams movie, right? We morph back to who we are, okay? We can take on the likeness and the appearance of romantic, but soon after Valentine's, we go back to actually who we are, all right? Um, now, I will say, and I've always said before, I think romance is a lifestyle, not an event, which kind of flies in the face of what I'm saying about Valentine's, all right? Um, but that's neither here nor there, all right? Uh, I, I think what Jesus is doing is not a temporary foray like we guys do in Valentine's. It's not a temporary appearance. It's not a song and dance for just a little bit of time that we do at Valentine's. What Jesus does in taking on human nature is not a temporary song and dance. It is an eternal decision that will be the eternal existence he'll have for the rest of time. Jesus, taking on human nature, will forever be in the nature of God and the nature of man. In fact, it's quite ironic as to really what we see. Paul will say here that Jesus was made in the likeness of men. Uh, The language there is hearkening back and is drawing you and I back to this Genesis account. Genesis 2, who is made in the image of God? 
man is. Philippians 2, who's made in the image of man? Jesus. Does that mean that Jesus did not exist prior to his being made in likeness of men? No, no, no. He existed forever, eternity past in the nature of God, but in his incarnation, he, in that point in time in his history, he takes on human nature and will forever be in the nature of man and the nature of God for all of eternity. And there's irony here as you get the Genesis 2 story of, in a sense, Adam and Eve being made in the likeness and the image of God, and now Philippians 2 in which Jesus is made in the likeness of God. Even more ironic, you have in, back in Genesis 2 and 3, you have Adam and Eve wanting to be like God, wanting to violently seize that status, and yet they don't get it, they don't possess it, and they still don't get it, and the results of their actions are catastrophic. And yet here we have Jesus who is in the nature and in the existence and equal to God, and yet he doesn't grasp it, he doesn't assert it, he doesn't claim it, he lays it down. And the results are not catastrophic, but they're life-giving. Like there's a foreshadowing that's going on all the way back to that Genesis account in Genesis 3. Genesis 2, God is, creates man in his likeness and his image. Genesis 3, we know Adam and Eve eat the apple. They fall in sin and they are cast out of the garden. Curses fall on humanity. Curses also fall on Satan. And notice what God says to Satan in Genesis 3. Notice the foreshadowing that comes of what we're reading here in Philippians 2. Notice what we find to the curse of Satan in Genesis 3. God says, I will put enmity or I will put hostility between you and the woman. I'm going to pray a separation and hostility between Satan himself and humanity and between humanity's seed or offspring and, and yours. Okay. And eventually one will come forth from the seed of woman who will bruise you Satan on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. What is God telling and foreshadowing to Satan in Genesis three? There's going to be war between Satan and humanity. And in that war, eventually God will bring forth one from the seed of woman, one from the seed of humanity, an offspring of humanity. And that one will deal a crushing fatal blow to the head of Satan. And that one will be, in a sense, nipped at the heel by Satan. Again, what is God saying here to Satan in Genesis 3 and how is this fulfilled? I think we we see clearly when Jesus is crucified, in a sense, that Satan deals a crippling blow to the heel of Christ. And yet in the resurrection over death, when Jesus shows he has the power and the ability to forgive sin and grant eternal life, what we find is that Jesus provides a crushing blow to the head of Satan. Satan is defeated at the cross and he's defeated at the resurrection. And what's fascinating about Genesis 3, what we find is that Genesis 3 is foreshadowing that there had to be a God-man. You couldn't have seen it. You couldn't have necessarily portrayed it and figured it out in Genesis 3. But in the aftermath of the coming of Jesus Christ, Genesis 3 points us back and says, notice, notice what I was foreshadowing. Humanity that God had created in his image to rule over the face of the earth and to have a relationship with him because of sin is tainted and distorted and cannot fulfill the purposes God has. Humanity that is dead in their transgressions, that is kicked out of the garden. How in the world will anyone from humanity crush and deal with Satan? Satan took humanity out in Genesis 3. Humanity cannot fulfill ultimately the purposes God has unless God does something. And he does something just as we see in Philippians 2 when Jesus takes on human nature. Why does he do it? Why was it absolutely necessary that we have a God-man? Why? What's happening? I think what we're going to see is that it's not just that Jesus had divine right. It's not just that he was willing to experience human plight. But what we ultimately get is a foreshadowing of salvation. This one who had divine right was willing to experience the human plight or the human condition, and it gives us a foresight of what is to come in regards to salvation. It's not just a great example of humility, because notice what Paul will tell us of what Jesus does. Verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
What is Paul saying as to what Jesus did? His humility is seen really in two different ways. One in his incarnation. He was willing to lay aside the privileges and the perfections of heaven and his divine nature to take on human nature. A human nature that was sinless, but a human nature that was still constricting of his glories and of his perfections. And it was a completely different kind of existence. One that showed and highlighted his ultimate humility. But it wasn't just his incarnation that showed us that it was also his willingness to die. And not just any kind of death, but a cross death. Jesus' willingness to go to the cross and to die in our place shows us greatly how perfect of an example of humility he is. And I think for some of us, when we think of the cross, we really miss the significance of that moment and of that event. I think for so many of us that wear the cross as jewelry, for so many of us that have the cross as an emblem on our ring, and for so many of us that even have crosses as decor in our homes, in many ways we've been lulled and we've missed the real scandal of what the cross was. Notice what Roman writer Cicero says of the cross. He says this, The very word cross should be far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To slay him is almost an act of murder. But to crucify him is what? There's no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. I think for so many of us, we've been lulled to sleep as to how absolutely atrocious and scandalous the cross was. I think as we hear, as we're reminded of the love of God, I think we often begin to miss it, how absolutely offensive the cross was and how absolutely offensive our sin was to God. If our sin had to be dealt with by God himself taking on human nature to come and die a cross death, then how absolutely offended was he? I think the cross shows not just his love, but it shows his holiness. In fact, Paul will say in Romans chapter 5, that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. When you and I miss how absolutely offensive our sin was to God, you and I also miss how greatly he loves us. As we diminish his holiness, we also diminish his love. Because it is his love that shows how greatly he went over to satisfy his wrath and his holiness so that we could have a relationship with him. Jesus had to be man so that he could stand as our substitute. But Jesus also had to be God because there could be no human example of sinlessness to be found. So Jesus, who was a God-man, God able to be sinless, God able to satisfy the wrath of God, but also man to act as our substitute. And really what the example of humility that Jesus shows us is one who provides us a foresight of salvation. His submission to death shows us what is to come in the future. His resurrection to life shows us what he's secured and provided for us. That our sin was so offensive that it needed the kind of death that, a, that God could do on a cross and that he could satisfy the wrath of God and forgive us and restore us. That's what the cross is. That's what the cross does. It shows us that God is holy and that he's righteous and yet he's provided a means to satisfy his wrath in the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And the only means to forgiveness is not on the basis of how you and I live and how well we do, but on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. And as we fully grasp his holiness, And as we fully grasp how offensive our sin is to him, then we get an even fuller sense of how greatly he loves us and how greatly he's gracious and compassionate towards us. That he would, in a sense, punish and take our payment for sin upon someone else and allow us to experience the forgiveness of life and eternal life absolutely freely. There's nothing you have to do because Jesus has done it all for us. You cannot approve and you cannot merit the approval of God because Jesus has done it for us. And what's so powerful about the book of Philippians, I feel every single week as we come back to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. 
that he's died in our place, that God has granted to you and I free of charge, eternal life and forgiveness of sins on the basis of what someone else has done for us. What an amazing gift. What an amazing opportunity. That God would give us what we could not earn and he would give it on the basis of his only son that he gave that was willing to take on human flesh and willing to die a cross death. An amazing turnaround of the story as the book of Philippians continues and as this passage continues is what led what was submission to death also led to the exaltation to glory. Notice how Paul ends this section. He says this, For this reason, in light of his incarnation, in light of his cross death, in light of that reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' great humility and his submission to death led to a great exaltation to glory. In the aftermath of death always comes glory. In the aftermath of humility always comes reward. And it only comes that way. I think the great pathway, the great thing that Paul wants us to see through this section as we look at the example of Christ, of his humility, is not just how far he stooped, not just how much he gave up, and not just how willing he was to die, but ultimately the great reward he received in the aftermath of that. Our world will tell us choosing others and dying to self is absolutely ridiculous. And in fact, Paul will say in this lifetime it is as well, because the reward that comes often is not in this lifetime. The reward of humility that comes for Jesus Christ was post-death, and often for us it is as well. That to lay our lives down, to lay down our rights, to lay down our own autonomy and our own possessions on behalf of and for someone else in this lifetime looks ridiculous. (laughs) Because the reward often doesn't come in this lifetime. There's a peace, there's a joy that comes as you live and as you walk with the Lord, but often the reward comes post-death. The reward is not seen. It is not grasped, which again is why Jesus is such a perfect example. What we would have thought after the cross, we would not have even imagined until we saw the resurrection. We saw Jesus raised to glory and toward new life with a promise that he had secured on our behalf that we can come with him. And when we come with him, will come great reward for those of us that have lived our lives and have sacrificed and lived with humility. So what do we do this morning with this kind of passage? What do we do with this kind of example that Jesus lays out for us? Let me give you guys four simple ideas, okay? I think one, we give thanks. Uh, I think one of our first opportunities in the midst of this passage as we think about humility is we simply give thanks as to what Jesus has done for us. That Jesus has secured life eternal for us on the basis of his own death and not our life. I think we give thanks in light of what he's provided us. Uh, Paul was saying in Ephesians 1 that uh, he's provided us every uh, blessing in the heavenlies that we are rich in Jesus Christ. That his mercies are new every morning. That his mercy and his grace is incredibly lavish and incredibly extravagant. It makes us rich even when we look poor. That if you have uh, the grace of Jesus Christ and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, no matter what's going on peripheral and uh, circumstantially, you are rich because you know Jesus Christ and you have a relationship with him. I think one of the greatest things we can do in response is simply to give thanks for what he has done. And so one of the things we're going to do as we end this morning is give you guys a chance just to reflect and worship, to have an opportunity to respond to the Lord in, in thankfulness for what he has done. And I think when we're thankful, when our hands are open in response and thanksgiving, and then one of the things that we begin to do and that we're able to do is begin to give attention to other people. I think when we're thankful and we, our hands are open and we're, we can begin to look around at everyone else. Like notice, remember back to chapter 2, verse 4. Notice what Paul says. He says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. It's easy to look out for number one. It's much harder to be proactive looking out for everybody else. 
And yet when our hands are open and when we're thankful, we have eyes to see the needs of those, of those that are around us. So one of the things I want to challenge you to do this week, this afternoon, is simply to go before the Lord and give thanks for what he's done on your behalf. But secondly, to ask him to give you eyes for those that are in your life. To give you eyes and a heart for the needs that are, are around you. And that as you're thankful and as your, your focus is shifted off of you, he can move your eyes and he can move your heart to see what is around you and the needs that are present. And then thirdly, let me challenge you to uh, find an opportunity, find uh, chances to give away your time and your stuff. Uh, if you're willing to be thankful and you're, you're willing to sit before the Lord and ask him to move your eyes to see and to move your heart to respond to those that are around you, you have an incredible opportunity to give your life away. I think ultimately you can do that in a series of ways. One is your time. Another way is your stuff. One of the opportunities we want to give uh, to you guys as well, we mentioned this already, is just our work projects. And in two weekends from now, we're going to have a chance to, for students to go out and to serve with their time. Uh, and families are going to have you guys do some work projects. And it's a great opportunity because they're going to give donations toward college missions. And so we've had 40 students already that say, hey, this summer I want to go overseas. I want to serve the Lord and I'm going to raise support to do that. And then these work projects are great ways for you guys to come alongside of those students. They're going to be overseas this summer and to serve them and to serve families in the church to help raise money for their trip. Great opportunity. Let me challenge you to consider that. Great chance just to give away your time. But as the Lord opens your eyes for whatever the needs are that are around you, you have an opportunity to move toward and to meet those needs. Often it is your eyes that are open because you have the ability to move towards those needs and respond to them. And then lastly, let me just remind you again that I think the last thing that we do in response to this is that we wait on the reward. We realize that as we give our life away, that often the response is not immediate. Often the reward doesn't come immediately from the person that we're giving our lives away to. But there is a reward that is coming that Jesus Christ will extend to us as we live for his glory and for his glory alone. So what we want to do this morning is just to give you guys an extended time at the end of the service just to respond in worship. And so Tyler and I are going to lead us through a couple songs. And once you just have a chance to come before the Lord, a chance to give him thanks for what he's done, and a chance to have your mind oriented and have him come and highlight for you needs that are around you and how you can move towards those. Father God, we thank you uh, that you've loved us enough to receive us just as we are. Uh, that we come broken, we come distressed, we come in need of a Savior. Father, I thank you that you love us and that you receive us just as we are. That we don't have to merit good works, that we don't have to make promises, we don't have to clean ourselves up, that you take us just as we are. And Father, I pray this morning, Lord, that we would find a depth of relationship with you that we've not found before. Pray that you would invite us deeper in for some for the first time. For others, Lord, I pray that we would find in you and in your grip and in your love a grace that is overwhelming. Father, we thank you for that which you've done on our behalf. We thank you for your gift of grace. Father, I pray that we would become those that can give it away. That we can extend your kindness, your love, and your mercies to those that are around us in our lives and those that we could pursue. Father, I pray you give us eyes to see the world as you see it and you would allow us to have hands to interact with it as you've called us to, and that we could be your hands and your feet and your mouth as we step into the world. Father, we thank you for these truths this morning. We thank you for the chance to worship and to draw near to you. Father, I pray that you would uh, draw us near and near to you, that you give us a week in which we could honor you in all that we do, and that you would draw us deeper and deeper, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, guys, thanks for being here this morning. Uh, we are going to end a little early this morning, but we'd love to have you guys stick around for lunch. So.